for the longest time, when my parents ask me what I do for work, I just tell them that I'm a social worker. It's just easier that way. But as um, as things went by and our research findings do tend to get picked up by mainstream media quite a lot and also in the Chinese newspapers as well. So they do read those and so that's how they understand what I'm doing. Um, yeah, I would say that my work has allowed me to interact with many, many, many people that I wouldn't have been able to interact with otherwise. It allows me to be on the ground interviewing people and also getting the chance to be able to engage them in a process of creating their own narratives. So I guess it is the possibility of change that motivates me and leads me to want to pursue activism and advocacy as something that I do in my work. Welcome to Screwed Up Moments the podcast where it's okay to fail and it's okay to try again. I'm your host, Danny. Hey listeners, thank you for joining us again on the Screwed Up Moments podcast. First off, I hope you all have been enjoying this season's episode so far. I've been receiving some great feedback on several of the episodes, so I am somewhat relieved that the work that we put into producing and recording and editing these stories aren't all going to waste. Secondly, I just want to mention again that the work we do here takes a lot of time and effort, so we would greatly appreciate it if you could show your support by sharing this podcast to a friend or your family or someone who you think might benefit from listening to our show. Also, if you're using an iPhone, do consider dropping us a review and subscribing on the Apple Podcast app. It's really simple. All you got to do is open up the app, search for Screwed Up Moments, click on the subscribe button, and leave your rating and review there. It only takes less than a minute, but each review helps us get discovered easier, which will in turn help us keep this thing going in the long term. Alright, and with that, let's move on to today's episode which I am super excited for because we are trying something new today. Instead of the regular format where we bring on a guest and get them to share their screwed up moments, we are going to do this thing whereby we feature an organization that helps people get through their screwed up moments. The reason we're doing this is because we noticed that throughout the episodes and the guests that having a support system or some sort of safe space is key to coping with difficult situations. And while friends and family can definitely help in this regard, we want to spotlight the organizations and the people behind them that make it their mission to do good and help others within our society. And so without further ado, I'm proud to present our first organizational feature episode with the Association of Women for Action and Research, otherwise better known as AWARE. AWARE have been around since late November 1985, and they have been prolific in pushing for gender equality and female advocacy in Singapore during all that time. Recently, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, they have put out a full-length report titled Migrant Wives in Distress, Issues Facing Non-Resident Women Married to Singaporean Men, and I'm happy to be able to discuss the issues raised with Senior Research Executive Chong Ning Tian, who shares her experience uncovering the plight of this certainly invisible population. 
My name is Ning Tian and I am working as a senior research executive at AWARE. So AWARE stands for the Association of Women for Action and Research. Um, we are a gender equality and women's rights advocacy organization. And our aim is to eliminate all gender-based barriers in Singapore so that individuals, um, regardless of gender, can develop their potential to their fullest. So we do this in three ways primarily. So first would be through research and advocacy. Um, second, through education and training. And finally, through direct support services to women in distress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and on that last point, right, I also noticed that AWARE has many other branches, including like corporate training, they have mm. a sexual assault care center, they have a legal clinic, they have counseling. It seems like quite a number of, you know, various things you guys are doing. And and I looked at your staff, it seemed like it was about 30, 30 people. You know, how big, yeah. how big is your team? Yes, um, <laughs> so currently I think we have around uh, 30 full-time and part-time staff. But mm. at the same time, we also work with quite a big group of volunteers. Um, so for example, for the helpline that the Women's Care Center runs, um, the helpline is manned mainly by trained volunteers and helpline staff. Mm. Um, we also work with a lot of interns. So definitely we need the help of a lot of people to make the kind of work that we do possible. Um, and yeah, we, a lot of us feel quite stretched. Um, mm. in, in what we do, I would say particularly for, um, those working in the sexual assault care center and the, and on the helpline. Um, particularly during this period, because we've seen a huge increase in calls to the helpline, um, since the circuit breaker measures were introduced. Um, yeah, so they, they are definitely very stretched. Um, yeah. but I mean, it's the same for the other departments as well, but particularly for them, it's been, it's been extra busy. To help put this into context, I'm pretty sure everyone that is currently listening to this has been somewhat affected by the currently ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And in Singapore, the country officially entered into lockdown, which we called the circuit breaker, on the 7th of April 2020. This entailed things like only going out of the house for essential purposes such as getting groceries or seeking medical help, and interestingly enough, coincided with reports of increased domestic violence across the nation. For instance, the Straits Times reported that between the 7th of April, again, that's the official start of the lockdown, and the 6th of May, there were 476 police reports filed for family violence-related offenses, which amounted to a whopping 22% increase over the monthly average of 389 cases pre-circuit breaker. Aware themselves have been feeling the strain as they reported a record high of 619 calls to their helpline number in March of 2020 alone. And they have also noted that at least 20 of these calls have come from migrant wives since January of this year. So I'm just a little bit curious, what is the culture like? I know you're primarily in the research side of things, but do yeah. you like help over at the, at the care center side from time to time or is it just, you know, you're focused at that role? Yeah, certainly. So um, we do work between departments quite closely. So mm. for example, the research team would regularly look at the helpline calls and try to make sense of the data that we are observing from the calls. For example, how we developed the latest paper that we just put out on migrant spouses and uh, migrant spouses callers to the, to the helpline. And we work very closely with the sexual assault care center as well because they work directly with survivors. So from mm. there, 
we get to understand what are the challenges that survivors face in, for example, making reports about what has happened to them um, and their experiences navigating the criminal justice system, for example. So these right. are some of the ways that we, we collaborate on. Right. And then in terms of the strategic plan for AWARE, right? So I saw on your website that it focuses on areas uh, like anti-violence, economic mm. inclusivity for low-income women, gender equality in the workplace, and aging and caregiving. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why these areas? Are they becoming more prominent in today's society? I would say that these areas are probably not new issues. Um, mm. These are problems that Singapore and women in Singapore have been struggling with all this time. Mm. Um, and in terms of scale, I guess these are, I mean, if you, for example, if we talk about violence, it, it is, it is one of those issues where even if the actual number of cases is not as high as we expect it to be, one case is still too many cases, right? So mm. that's, that's kind of, I guess, where the starting point is. But at the same time, how we decide what to focus on also depends a lot on what is happening outside. So we are responsive to, for example, conversations around the aging population so that's yeah. where where our focus on caregiving and informal caregivers come from um so i would say in that sense our work is strategic because it, it responds to to uh, national priorities and national conversations but at the same time of course we try to introduce topics that have not really captured the national attention yet so that's where we want to focus more on marginalized women for example i mean mm. yala, uh, with migrant spouses as, as one example that if we leave things to be um they probably wouldn't get too much attention um right. as, a, as a group so that's where uh that's where we come in to try to advocate on their behalf okay so at this point, some of you might be thinking, hey, isn't 20 out of 600 plus calls a little too small of a portion to invest so much time and research into? Why even cover this population at all? Well, while I can't really remark too much on AWARE's behalf, chances are that they are already or have been looking into things like family violence. And as Ning Chen has pointed out earlier, this isn't really a new issue at all. However, what I can add is that the migrant spouse population is especially vulnerable, and that no matter how small the number, like what Ning Chen has said, one is more than enough. Moreover, my own wife is a public health researcher who has studied migrant spouse communities, and if being asked to go through and edit rounds and rounds of her manuscripts has taught me anything, it is that they are susceptible because of factors such as number one, they are not familiar with the culture and thus struggle to fit in, number two, they don't have many friends or support networks and so have very few places to go for help, number three, they often are ineligible for work and are thus mostly dependent on their spouses. In fact, some researchers have even found that migrant spouses have higher rates of depression, anxiety, and stress as compared to local married women or the general population. Researchers have also pointed out that at the individual level, they tend to be more socially isolated than the local population, while at the broader societal level, they are often faced with racial prejudice, negative stereotypes, and discrimination from the local community. There are, of course, a plethora of other factors involved, psychological, cultural, economical, political, and so on. But I think these will provide a good underlying gist for now. Later on in the episode, Ning Tian will help to shed more light on some of the unique circumstances they face here in Singapore, as well as the kind of difficulties and struggles it leads to. 
But for the moment, I wanted to know a little bit more about why Ningtian joined Wear and her commitment to advocacy work. After all, this isn't the most typical job or career path, and I'm not sure that many Singaporean kids would have advocacy work in mind over the more common choices such as engineering, accounting, law, medicine, finance, and what have you. So I did a bit of research to come up with some questions, which was when I stumbled upon this. So I'm walking around some blocks tonight to see if there are anyone, if there's anyone sleeping outside. This is for a research that a team is doing. So they did something similar two years ago um, where they went out on one night to count the number of persons sleeping outside. Um, and this year they want to do it island-wide. So I'm volunteering to do this. My name is Ning Tian. I work as a senior research executive at AWARE and I am a women's rights activist. I've always been interested in two things. I've been interested in research and women's rights. Um, and I've always believed that research should be for a purpose and the purpose should be to address um, inequalities and social injustices that we observe around us. I think the issue of homelessness is one that's quite understudied in Singapore. We don't really have any robust data. So this uh, research is really important. As a society, um, we are quite depoliticized in a sense that, you know, in schools, for example, we don't really learn about, I mean, we don't learn about things like social injustices. Poverty, for example, is always like, okay, so the solution is to volunteer or you donate money or things like that. It's never about protesting or organizing yourselves to, to demand for a particular change that you want to see. There are many things that people can do in their own capacity as well. Even you just speaking to your friends about issues that you care about to get more public awareness about certain things. You always, for example, write in to your MPs to tell them uh, these are things I want you to raise or even write into the media to uh, air your opinions about how you feel. Our single parents campaign, after we have completed the research and things, you know, we have all these data, um, but what really captures the minds of the general public, I think, is uh, when individual people's stories are showcased and highlighted. So it's really going beyond the numbers and saying this particular problem happening to a real person and their families. Yeah, so uh, speaking of advocacy work, right? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I, I saw like a clip of you where you went out and <laughs> talked to homeless people in Singapore. I, yeah, the video was about what activism meant to us and right. what different ways of doing activism and advocacy in Singapore. So that particular study that you cited is a nationwide survey on homelessness um, mm. in Singapore and uh, it was headed by a professor from the LKY school, Ng Kok Ho. Yeah, so he and his team um, rolled out the survey and then uh, they recruited, uh, I think, a really, really huge group of volunteers because we were all meant to go out on the same night to, to do this street count. Mm. So, um, I, yeah, I mean, I was one of the volunteers for, for that particular project. So I, I joined AWARE right after I graduated from university. So this is my first uh, full-time job. Um, and I'm always... I'm very grateful for the fact that they were hiring just when I graduated. So um, I have a degree in sociology and sociology really, I think, shaped 
uh, the way that I see the world. So, which is to understand that every social phenomenon that we observe today and experience today is a product of particular arrange- arrangements of power. And because such arrangements are made by humans and it's a product of power, they can be changed. And it is the possibility of change that, uh, I guess, motivates me and leads me to want to pursue activism and advocacy as something that I, that I do in my work. I'm always very aware of the fact that I'm lucky that I'm paid to do this. There are so many other people doing advocacy and activists in their own free time and also often at a great cost to themselves. So the fact that I'm getting paid to do this is something that I think I, I really appreciate. Um, and, and yeah, I'm always conscious of the fact that this is a very privileged and lucky position to be in. Um, yeah, I would say that my work has allowed me to interact with many, many, many uh, people that I wouldn't have been able to interact with otherwise. Um, it allows me to be on the ground interviewing people and also getting the chance to be able to engage them in a process of creating their own narratives um, and stories. So I guess I think that's what I find most meaningful, the fact that they, they get a chance to really have their stories out there in their own words. So it's not just, um, you know, researchers writing about them or the media writing about them, but they, they get a chance to speak for themselves. There's a point I certainly can relate to. I'm just curious, uh, what do your friends and family think about you working <laughs> with AWARE and, you know, all this uh, advocacy stuff? Um, when I first joined AWARE, I, for the longest time, when my parents ask me what I do for work, I just tell them that I'm a social worker. It's just easier that way. Because um, I think one thing is really the language problem. Uh, so my parents don't speak English and I speak mostly Mandarin at home. Right, it's right. very hard to translate what I do. I think uh, I'm, I'm very limited in my lack of language capacity to properly describe the, the work that I do in Mandarin. So, yeah. um, I mean, they'll ask me, are you doing sokong, right? Which is translated in English is literally social work. So I'm mm. like, yes, that's that's what that's what I do. <laughs> um, but as um, as things went by, and because uh, our our research findings do tend to get picked up by mainstream media quite a lot, and also in the Chinese newspapers as well. So they do read those, and so that's when that's when they ask, like, oh, are you? Is this what you're working on? I'm like, yes, actually, actually, yes, I, we, we are responsible for this. I'm also part of the team that produced this. So that's how they understood what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, my, I mean, yeah, I think my friends think that it's, it's, it's cool that I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. Uh, I haven't really received any, any strange reactions, maybe from more like from extended family members who don't really understand, but sometimes, sometimes they try to engage me in debates during family gatherings and I'm like, I, I'm off the clock. I, I have no energy to engage you today. I'm sorry. It's retiring sometimes. Yeah. Advocacy and activism, I can only imagine, must feel like the most thankless, underappreciated work at times especially in Singapore where the tendency is to focus on your own individual studies and careers rather than societal issues at large, it can be difficult to garner respect, much less to be taken seriously even by your own friends and family. More often than not, people who do activism or advocacy work are perceived to be too naive, too idealistic, too disruptive, troublemaking, or just simply wasting their time. 
which is why I think perspectives such as Ning Chen's are valuable in helping, even in the tiniest bit, to mitigate those stigmas. Main reason being of the very stakeholders that they are advocating for, which nicely segues back into our discussion about migrant spouses. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that you are the senior research executive at AWARE. And uh, one of the main reasons why I wanted to reach out for this interview was because of a report that you and your team recently published uh, titled Migrant Wives in Distress, Issues Facing Non-Resident Women Married to Singaporean Men. So, first of all, right, I just want to mention that I only came across this report thanks to my wife, Effie, who is actually a nursing PhD that has done quite a fair bit of research in the migrant wife population. So right, okay. Thank you, Effie. <laughs> <laughs> and then secondly, um, I have to say that this was quite a powerful read for a number of reasons. There was a lot of eye-opening discussion on the many ways in which migrant women are exploited and um, disadvantaged by Singapore's immigration system, which we will get to in a bit. There were the incredibly moving and tragic stories of the women who shared their experiences about abuse and being forced to leave the country and not being able to legally challenge for custody rights over their own children. And then finally, you have the context of Singapore being in lockdown due to COVID-19 and the overwhelming day-to-day narrative focused around the illness and new cases and unemployment and the economy which, sad to say, further drowns the voices and the plight of these migrant wives, the majority of whom never even had much of a voice to begin with. So, you know, Ningqian, kudos to you and your team for being that voice. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so um, first off, right, AWARE puts out several reports every year around various topics and issues in society. What was the reason behind the focus on migrant wives for this report? What were you hoping to accomplish with this research? Mm, I would say that we have been concerned about the rights of um, migrant spouses for quite some time. Mm. So um, actually in 2016, we published a policy brief that summarized some of the challenges that they were facing in immigration, uh, you know, with regards to immigration status, um, housing, employment, etc. And then we also made recommendations to ensure that their rights were being protected. So along the way, we have also noticed that there were increasing number of calls to the helpline there's basically an overall increase in calls to the helpline anyway. But uh, since since we've already noticed an increase in calls, why not just uh, really do a more in-depth analysis on, on the numbers? And so we wanted to, of course, highlight uh, the exact nature of the, the challenges that they were facing and specifically point to the fact that, you know, it's not because these women made, you know, quote-unquote bad choices or they are inferior in any way. It's the fact that there are certain structural reasons that shape their experiences and their choices. And specifically for their case, it is the immigration policies that's making life very difficult for them. Basically, if you're if you a migrant spouse and you don't have access to a work, uh, an employment-based pass, so like you're not an S-pass, you're not a work permit, etc., you have to depend entirely on your citizen spouse for your right to stay in the country, um, either through the LTVP or LTVP+. So that's one thing that heavily skews the power balance in any relationship very heavily towards the citizen spouse. And of course, when we factor the gender angle in, um, the fact is that most of these migrant spouses are women. And in, in such relationships, there's already, there's already an imbalance of power to begin with, just stemming from the, the gender dynamics. And the immigration policy is making, is basically worsening that imbalance. Thank you. 
one one clear example is in cases that we've seen where there was spousal violence. Uh, very often, what the what the perpetrator or the citizen spouse does or says is that you know if if you don't do what I say or if you don't listen to me, I will just cancel your pass. Um, technically, they are not allowed to do that. You can't unilaterally cancel uh, someone's LTVP without the written consent of the migrant spouse. But the problem is that usually migrant spouses don't know this, and even if that is the case, the threat is still very real because what they can do is to just stop sponsoring the past once it expires. And then when it comes to divorce proceedings, the citizenship status of the, of the parent um, is something that the courts would take into account when they are deciding who should get custody and can control. So the fact that um, the woman can't stay in the country independently is something that would count against them. So that's just another instance of where we see immigration policies putting them at a disadvantage. Yeah, that, that was a that was one point I thought was quite surprising as well. Uh, I think specifically in the report you mentioned that this gave the local spouse, uh, the phrase you used was uneven bargaining power. And then you pointed out that, you know, there were a number of cases where they went uncontested, you know, or the migrant spouse didn't have any legal representation at all. Yeah, so it's like, it's insane. And then um, I think the report also included something with regards to housing as well, which you could uh, talk about. Yes, about housing. Um, Yeah, some some of the callers to the helpline said that they experience being chased out of their family homes um, mm. and they were in need of shelter <clears throat> and at the same time uh, because they are often in this country without their own family members um, and you know if they don't if they're not working they have very few friends and a very small support network um, it means that they often struggle to find alternative shelter yeah. so Usually what happens to these callers is that we would try to link them up with social workers from family service centers who can help them apply for shelter if they are in need of shelter. So that's one case. Um, and then at the same time, when it comes to housing problems, the problem is compounded for those who are divorced or those who are widowed because um, without the citizen spouse, it's even harder for them to access public housing because if you I mean yeah if you're, if you're not PR if you're not a citizen it's very difficult for you to get any form of public housing yeah. so when a migrant spouse is going through divorce and you know she's trying to fight for custody for, of her Singaporean citizen child um, the fact that she you know can't can't reside in the country independently or you know doesn't have stable housing because of her citizenship status would disadvantage her during that process and at the same time if they do not uh, manage to get custody or care and control of their child, it makes it difficult for them to continue staying in the country. So you can see that this is a problem that just kind of, it's, it's reinforcing the problems that they are facing. You know, you have no, so first of all, your immigration status disadvantages you in this way, and then you can't get custody or care and control of your child. And then without the care and control or custody of your child, it's even harder for you to continue staying in the country because it will be more difficult for them to try and apply for LTVP because they, they can't say, oh, you know, it's because I my, my child needs me to be around, so I, I need to be around. So I think that the situation is just really, really bad for them. Imagine being abused and then threatened to stay quiet or risk being sent back. Imagine going through divorce proceedings without knowing if you can even stay in the country to contest, much less think about winning custody. 
Imagine coming to Singapore from a country like Vietnam or Bangladesh or Indonesia or the Philippines, marrying a local here, working hard to maintain the house, bearing and raising children, and still have the very real threat of your immigration status loom over you. These are just some of the struggles and issues that Ningtian and her research team have helped to uncover. And to further flesh out these problems, they have included several real-life stories towards the end of their report. The first would be um, Sheena. So she is a divorced mother of one Singaporean child, and she unfortunately did not manage to get care and control of her child. So she had married a Singaporean man, and she was on an LTVP. But her husband started being abusive shortly after they got married, and after she gave birth, she was asked by her in-laws and her husband to return to Bangladesh. And then when she was away, her husband filed for divorce. So. Upon returning to Singapore, she didn't feel safe to go back to her family home, so she sought refuge in a women's shelter. But at the same time, she also fell into a deep depression because she was unable to see her daughter. And you know, sometimes when we tell this to other people, there's some of their reactions are like, "Oh, you know, then why why don't they just go back?" To their home countries, if life is so hard here. But the fact is that they have a child here. You know, they have a family. They have lives、um, here. So for for Sheena especially,、uh, you know, when we did the interview,、um, it was very clear that her main motivation for staying is for her child. And I mean, just rightly so. If you're a parent and your child is here, you will want to be where your child is. So、uh, that's that's basically her main struggle now. And then、uh, finally, I have a one last story from Ruhi, who is、um, she's Indian and she is married to a Singaporean. So she was also on an LTVP, and then for several renewals, it was fine until one day ICA、uh, rejected her application,、um, and she was called out by ICA to go down for an interview. And that was when she found out that her husband was actually legally married to another woman in Singapore. So、uh, for Ruhi and the the men, they were actually I mean their marriage was registered in India、uh, before they came to Singapore, and then、um, it was only after a while that I think ICA found out that he has two marriages, which is not allowed. So because of that, she cannot have an LDPP, even though she's technically still married to him.、Uh, and as a result, she is now on one of those short term passes. And because she's on a short term pass, she cannot get employment. So she's struggling because she has no work. Yeah, that is the, that is the main challenge that she's facing. Having worked on this report and、uh, and some of these migrant wives closely, right, or some of these、uh, migrant spouses closely, do you think your view of their situation has changed? I think I have started paying more attention to how the media has been framing、uh, their stories and their experiences, and I think I I don't always agree with the way that their stories are framed.、Mm. Um, I did notice that you know there was quite an emphasis on how oh uh basically on the reasons why. They came to Singapore. Why they they want to marry Singaporean men? And I think like even if they don't explicitly write it or say it, the implicit there's this implicit uh kind of hinting that you know it's because they you know they are not really doing it for love. They are just doing it out of practicality, etc. And、mm. sometimes I think it comes those kinds of impression come from a very a, a rather judgmental position. So.、Mm. I just don't think that the focus should be on why people are married. All of us marry for a variety of reasons. You can marry because you think you love this person, or you know there are also people who are married because 
it is a way to improve economic situation, you know, and it's not just a strategy that's employed by lower income people or by people who are migrants. It is something that happens across class and across cultures. So I just don't think that it's, uh, you know, when we are talking about the situations of migrant spouses, that that should be the focus. Um, the focus should be on the fact that they are here and that they have families here. You know, they are workers, they are parents, they are caregivers, etc. So how can we basically enable them to perform these roles better? Because, you know, if we are always saying that we are a society that is friendly for families and we welcome families, then why is it that we treat some families so differently from others and make their situation so much harder? Yeah. I think at the root of it all, the immigration policies really, really need, need to be reformed in some way to provide greater protection to migrant spouses. So, um, you know, for a start, for those who are experiencing violence, especially at the hands of the citizen spouse, um, we strongly recommend that they be allowed to sponsor their own passes, um, independently of the perpetrator who is the, who is the citizen spouse, because, you know, the status quo is forcing some women to stay in abusive marriages because they don't want to lose their right to remain in the country or have to leave their children. So, and I think in general, information that is relevant and accessible to migrant spouses need to be more widely available. So through our interviews, we we found that it's very hard for them to get information um, about their rights, about where they can go for support. There is, for example, no one place that you can go to to find information about what kinds of housing that you can qualify for or what types of paths that you could qualify for. Um, so I think all this information would be, would be helpful, not just to the migrant spouse, but also to, to the family as a whole. And then I guess finally, some people have also asked, like, you know, as a just regular citizens, how can we, how can we help or how can we support? Um, I think this is where it is important for citizens, um, who care about you know, making Singapore a family-friendly place, for example, to make it known that when we say these things, that we mean that we support and include all families and that rights are rights and they should be available to everybody on the basis that you are a human person and not because you are a citizen of a certain place. So I think that's a message that needs to be amplified a bit more amongst the population. I mean, it's, it's definitely not easy, but we hope that through sharing these stories and showing how these families and these spouses are trying to make their lives work here would encourage people to see them in a different light. Yeah. And so with that brings the end to this special collaborative episode of the Screwed Up Moments podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that wasn't too weird of an episode and that at least you learned something new today. I know I certainly did. And of course, much thanks to Aware and Ningtian for taking the time to talk about what they do, as well as their recent report on migrant spouses. If you would like to learn more about the finer details regarding the specific immigration policies and how they affect migrant spouses, I suggest that you read up on the full Aware report. I will be linking them in the episode description, alongside other relevant resources, such as my wife's own paper, where she breaks down the health of East and Southeast Asian marriage migrants. Also, if you're interested, I have included the link to the video where Ning Tian talks about activism and advocacy in Singapore. It's a really neat short documentary piece called Making Trouble, and it was produced by Nabila Husna Abdul Rahman. Go check it out. 
And with that being said, the Screwed Up Moments podcast is brought to you by the Singaporean Social Enterprise Happiness Initiative, an organization that advocates for happiness and well-being through their message that happiness is a choice. Production and editing was done by me, Danny Cordy, on behalf of Fable Productions. Episode music was sourced from Blue Dot Sessions, and the theme song was composed by Rico Lowe. If you enjoyed listening to the Screwed Up Moments podcast, you can help out the show by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feedback, or if you have your own Screwed Up Moments story to share, you can drop us a message through the email dkoordi at fableproductions.com or through the various social media links in the description. Once again, this has been your host Danny for the Screwed Up Moments podcast, reminding you that it is okay to fail and it is okay to try again. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.